Shabbat Shalom. It's so good to be here standing in the sanctuary with all of you and with all of you. We've arrived in Shabbat, in the Shlemut, in the wholeness of Shabbat. Recently, my husband and I were watching a video of Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Viet Vietnamese Buddhist monk and renowned spiritual teacher who died on January 22nd. May, may his memory be blessed. The video was entitled, Surrender to the Present Moment. He started with these words, speaking in his inimitable, sweet and hushed voice, reading from a note card. He said, Good morning, dear Sangha. Today is January 14th, the year 2004. We are in the Deer Park Monastery during our winter retreat. Deer Park is a monastery he founded in California. And then he looked up and staring directly into the camera, he said the following. Last week, we learned the gata, which I've learned uh, means song or verse in Sanskrit. I have arrived. I am home in the here, in the now. I am solid. I am free. In the ultimate, I dwell. He then proceeded to give an hour-long talk without looking at a single note. At some point, my husband turned to me and said, for the date and location, he needs a note card, but for an hour-long talk, he doesn't need a single note. My husband is an investigative reporter. He doesn't miss a beat. My husband and I discussed that Thich Nhat Hanh seems to live on a different plane of reality than the rest of us. As he himself says, Thich Nhat Hanh, in the ultimate. So much so that for basic details of the world we all live in and don't think twice about and don't need note cards for, he needs to read them off a card. I mean, he needs to take notes on that and, and just try to remember where he is and when it is. But what is second nature to him is spiritual reality. He can as easily talk about spiritual reality as the rest of us can say, I'm in New York City, it's February 11th, 2022. So I've been binge watching a lot of his videos, if you can binge watch Thich Nhat Hanh. It's not exactly like uh, Netflix, but I'm finding it strangely exciting and, and compelling. And he describes the place that he lives, the kingdom of heaven, and I know for some of us, kingdom is a stumbling block. So if you can, translate it in your mind so you hear the deeper truth of what he's saying. He describes the kingdom of God in this way. The, the kingdom of God is available to you in the here and now. But the question is, are you available to the kingdom? Our practice is to make ourselves ready for the kingdom so that it can manifest in the here and now. And in fact, that's kind of what I've been feeling in Tzilat tonight, that something of divinity 
is manifest here and now, is dwelling amongst us. You don't need to die in order, that's good, in, to, in order to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, what you need to do is to be truly alive in order to do so. Elsewhere, he calls this kingdom, the kingdom, the pure land of the Buddha, saying it's not just an idea, it's something he says that you can taste, you can touch, you can live in your daily life. Which I think brings us directly to the Parsha that we're in, and also last week's Parsha, which talk all about the building of a sanctuary for God to dwell in. Dwell in. And in fact, God shows Moshe a blueprint for the sanctuary up above, a tavnit, right? A, a kind of paradigm for what we're building below, for this sort of divine image that we're making manifest below. And in this week's Parsha, all about the, the, priest, the priestly clothes, Sometimes, I will confess to you, even though I'm a rabbi, I read these chapters and I kind of go to sleep or get really sleepy, and it's hard to really sustain my attention. But then, when I think about what it's really about, that God's, God wants God's presence to dwell amongst us, that God wants to be closer to us, I wake up. And I want to know, wow, that's how they do it? That's how they did it. How do we do that? How do we manifest God's presence amongst us? How do we create a sanctuary for us, for, for God to live amongst us? So that in itself is radical. But what I want to talk a little bit about is the traditional approach to these chapters. Something even more radical and having to do with time. So the way the Torah is laid out the children of Israel stand at Sinai, and then they receive all these laws called Mishpatim. They hear the Ten Commandments, the laws called Mishpatim. And then they're given the instruction, or Moshe hears the instructions for the tabernacle. Again, these two portions that we're in. Then, right after that, the children of Israel, so anxious about Moses' presence not being with them, and kind of terrified by the power of God's presence and having lost their intermediary, they create a golden calf. And after that, Moshe sees it, shatters the tablets, um, they're punished, uh, God, for, you know, there's some kind of forgiveness and rapprochement between Moses and God and the people, and Moses is given a second set of tablets um, and right after that, they build the, the sanctuary. So between the ideal or the instructions for the sanctuary and the real is this sin and this shattering. But Rashi says something different. Rashi looks at these chapters and says no. And he uses a principle that's called Ein Mukdam Umuhar Batara. There is no earlier and later in the Torah. It's a rabbinic principle. And Rashi says no. The instructions for the tabernacle weren't given before the golden calf, the sin of the golden calf, but they were given right as Moshe was coming down the mountain with the, with the tablets, with the second tablets, 
which were, you know, the tablets that testified to God forgiving God's people. And that was the day of Yom Kippur. And the next day, the people started building um, the tabernacle. So these are two very different understandings of the narrative. But before we even sort of try to approach what's going on here, I just want to think about what is Rashi doing here? How can he possibly rearrange the narrative? And what is this rabbinic principle that says, there is no earlier and later in the Torah. So we're beyond now chronology, right? We've transcended chronology. And it reminds me of the ancient, um, the ancient idea of time in the Greek world, two ideas, one chronos, which lies at the heart of chronology, and one kairos, which is spiritual time. And I want, I want to quote for a moment a, philosoph, uh, a professor of the philosophy of religion named Lonnie Cleaver, who wrote in a magazine called Artella in 2003. Kronos is sequential time. Kronos is the time of clocks and calendars. It can be quantified and measured. Kronos is linear, moving inexorably out of the determinate past Towards, towards the determined future and has no freedom. Kairos, on the other hand, is numinous time, time that's chock full of presence. Kairos is a time of festivals and fantasies. It cannot be controlled or possessed. Kairos is circular dancing, time back and forth, here and there, without beginning or ending, and knows no boundaries. Now think for a moment about time. How often do you feel like you're in a forced march, right? That you're, that you're in this sort of flow of time from birth to death that inexorably just leads you in one linear direction and you're imprisoned by that time. On the other hand, what Judaism does and what the rabbis did is giving us a gift of another kind of time, of spiritual time. So think about like even the Kiddush that we're gonna say later tonight, right? Zikaron. Right? Shabbat is testimony, is commemoration to the creation of the world, right? God creates the world in six days and then rests, and we imitate God by resting on the seventh day. We've completely entered mythic time, right? Where is Shabbat in the world? Nowhere except in a myth that we're all living in that holds us, that holds us. And these ways, in Judaism and in other traditions, time becomes much more than linear, much more than a straight line from birth to death, which means, and I think this is exciting and hopeful, even if I'm older, which I am, or, or God forbid, sick in some way, or have limited time for some reason on this earth, there is hope because worlds wait for us at every moment. Right, every moment we can enter the mythos of leaving Egypt or standing at Sinai or witnessing God creating the world. I mean, it's the wonders are infinite here, which I think is why we all dive into Torah study, right? We're all like standing at Sinai again and again. So, what's it, so to, go, to go back to Rashi, what's at stake for Rashi in this rearrangement? of the narrative and this audacious move to take what is before the golden calf 
I put it after the golden calf. Again, the instructions for the tabernacle. So think about it for a minute. The people took the gold from Egypt and they used it to create a golden calf. And then God came to them and said, no, 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 no. Listen, I understand what you need here. You don't really have to sin. I understand that you need something concrete in order to encounter my presence. And if you think about sin this way, as, as opposed to people sinning or doing something wrong, it's like, what did they really need? And how did they miss the mark? And what can I give that person? Like, God forbid, like an addict, right? I, I don't think an addict is, is a sinner in any way, but what can we give them so they can realign their life, you know, towards integrity and wholeness and sanctity and connection? What can we give that person? So that's Rashi's understanding. The other understanding, the way the Torah is laid out, that the instructions for the tabernacle come before the golden calf is that the healing, the trufah, the medicine for the sin is always waiting for us. It's baked into the very fabric of existence. So no matter what we've done, we have to figure out what was that energy and how can I repurpose it? And that the universe is inviting us to do that. I've been feeling so much lately that the world is in need of great healing. I mean, two years of a pandemic, or almost two years, um, this sort of loss of connection, or loss of embodied connection, um, wonderful to create, to connect on Zoom, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a loss not to have a lot of people in one room and sort of feel the presence of God dwell amongst us in that particular way. But there's also the healing of like individuals who are shattered. Like I, I know a family who's been shattered by a suicide and another one who's shattered by years of betrayal that just came to light. Or another, you know, a friend of mine who did something that he did not mean to his family and hurt them so badly. You know, where is the healing? And I don't believe that healing is something easy. It's not an easy fix, right? But if we sort of proceed in our lives with the understanding and the assumption that healing is waiting for us, that can be sort of a powerful corrective and give us so much deep hope. Perhaps to heal, we need to move into a deeper plane, into a realm where God's presence dwells, dwells. move from Kronos to Kairos, the place and where, and you can hear it in his deeply calm, gentle voice, Thich Nhat Hanh lives. Like the rabbis, freeing ourselves from the linear time that can imprison. So I listened to one more, well, I listened to a lot of them, but one more um, video that I want to tell you about and then bring this in for a landing. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a, a video that's called something like, you know, how to change the bad energy of bad habits. And what he says is that when we move into that healing mindful zone, everything we do not only heals us, but our parents and our ancestors, right? Every bite we take in this kind of, this sort of ultimate zone, can rectify us, our parents, and generations before us. 
Talk about playing with time. Wow, right? That's ein mukdam muachar. There's no early and late in the world. So to, again, approach life in that way and not to think that sins are, um, you know, something that will sort of damage us and shatter us forever and that all is lost, but that we can stand here and help not only ourselves and the generations that come afterwards, but all the generations that came before. What a hopeful vision of life. So instead of living in chronological time of dates and places, let us move deeply into mythic time, the realm of presence and reverence and awe, to echo Thich Nhat Hanh at the beginning. Let us go home to the place that the divine dwells in intimate spaces of presence, where a deeper plane of time manifests where the presence, the very presence, the holy presence that lives amongst us can say, I have arrived, I am home. In the here, in the, in the now, I am free. Shabbat shalom.